Welcome back to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Gordon. If you're watching the replay or on YouTube, thanks so much for being a part of the Menopause Movement. Today, we welcome Jessa Zimmerman to the podcast, and we're going to talk about sex. Jessa Zimmerman is a certified sex therapist and couples counselor. She specializes in helping couples who have a good relationship, but who are avoiding sex because it's become stressful, negative, disappointing, or pressured. She educates coaches and supports people as they go through her nine-phase experiential process that allows them real-world practice in changing their relationship and their sex life. She's the author of Sex Without Stress, the host of the Better Sex podcast, and is a regularly featured expert in the media, including Refinery29, Business Insider, MindBodyGreen, and Marriage.com. And during the podcast, we talk about Jenna's background and how she got into sex therapy. What's at the core of a couple's perceived sexual dysfunction? The beliefs around sex that are not true. The importance of understanding that nothing is broken. We talk about what is desired discrepancy and how to address it. The importance of knowing what is pleasurable for you. Painful sex and how to manage it. Recognizing your triggers in the bedroom. Becoming aware and responsible for our own sexual pleasure the meaning of expectations, and making sex easy in your relationship. Now, at the end of the episode, make sure you visit drmichellegordon.com forward slash podcasts, where you can find the show notes plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. And if you enjoyed the episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you're always the first to know when each episode is released. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for all of the five-star reviews. If you haven't left a review yet, please take the time to review the podcast because this helps more women find it and get the help they need during the disruption of menopause. No one should have to go it alone. And thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. We're so excited to have you here. Now let's get to Jessa and we'll talk about sex. So, Jessa, yes. welcome to the Menopause Movement Podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. I want to get a little bit uh, of your background, right? So, okay. how did you get into, I guess, you're a sex therapist, what's right. your background, and how did you train, that sort of thing? It all actually stemmed out of a divorce. So, after 17 years of marriage and homeschooling, three kids, and being a stay-at-home mom, it was like, ah, i got to do something. And so, I went back to school and I got my master's to be a therapist knowing I wanted to work with couples. And early on in that training, a sex therapist was teaching one of the classes and she talked about her work is mostly grief and loss work. Mm. And that statement hit me in the gut. Like people are suffering when their sex life is not working. And so I recognized that from my own marriage, you know, what had been my marriage. And, and I just knew in that moment, I want to be a sex therapist. <laughs> so I had to finish my master's and get my license and do all the training. There's a lot of training actually to become a certified sex therapist. Yeah. Uh, so it took a little while, but that's been my focus from the beginning. You reinvented yourself after your divorce. So how, how long were you married? I was married 17 years. Yeah. So would you say that you had some sort of, you know, existential or midlife crisis as a result <laughs> of the divorce? <laughs> Yeah, because I'd been a stay-at-home mom and any jobs I'd had before, like I had no career to go back to. Anything I'd done before was totally obsolete. And so out of necessity, it's like, holy cow, what do I do to support me and three kids? I mean, you know, I got alimony for a bit and stuff like that. But very quickly, I had to figure out 
what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Right. So I sort of pushed into that crisis through the, the divorce earlier than I might have done it. This is really interesting. So had you gone through menopause yet when you had your divorce? No, I mean, I was 45. So I was probably perimenopausal. Right. Okay. So, And one of the things that we see a lot in women in menopause is the, and it really, truly, it brings on an identity crisis because the menopause comes and we don't expect it. We don't know what the heck is going on. And all of a sudden, you know, we're doing weird stuff. We're snapping at people or we're throwing things or, you know, we're crying at the drop of a hat. And during perimenopause, when a lot of change can happen in our lives, we can choose to, you know, have our relationships improve. We can choose to end the relationships. We can choose to start putting ourselves first. I mean, there's just a lot of things that can happen. And, you know, in your case, you chose to end your relationship. Do you think that your perimenopause played any role in that? I mean, not in terms of mood or anything like that, but I do think it's a time of life where I think it is more about power or stepping into something new. So I do think there was a way it was unwilling to live like that anymore. And and I wouldn't necessarily have chosen the timing. I mean, my youngest was four or five. So it was like, you know, three kids. It was, it was difficult, but I also couldn't keep going the way it was. Right. Okay. So it wasn't like you had an empty nest or anything like that. No, no. Okay. Because it is really common that, you know, when our last kid leaves the house, that we can, you know, start like, what, what's next? And who am I now? And <laughs> right, you know, things right. like that, right? All right. You go to college. Did you already have a master, uh, a bachelor's? Yeah, I already had my four-year degree, although it was in hotel administration. So nothing okay. related. That had been, you know, back in the day. So I had to go back and get a master's degree. And where did you go for that? Just out of curiosity. Well, I went to this program that actually now no longer exists in Seattle, which is really sad, but it was called Leos and it had existed for 45 years. And it was very experiential about the person of the therapist. And it was a, an amazing program. So I'm very grateful to have had that training. Was it associated with any of the colleges there? And Well, it was umbrellaed under Saybrook University in San Francisco because that's who held the accreditation, but they had existed as this organization for 45 years. So you go back, you get your degree, and you decide to become a sex therapist because of the grief and loss work. So let's let's delve deep into a little bit into grief and loss and, and how it affects our sex life. I think that could be very, very powerful for any woman who's watching this. And if you're the type of woman who has experienced a loss of sex drive, loss of libido because of your menopause, don't think that you're alone in that because it's <laughs> not at all very common problem. And it's a common symptom of menopause. And it can not only affect, you know, your own self-esteem, it can affect your, your, you know, your relationship, especially if, you know, men always want to have sex. <laughs> it's actually, that's a myth. Just so you know. Is it? That's, well, I don't know. That's not my experience, you know, but it is true. I think that men need to have sex to feel loved and women need to feel loved to have sex. Well, you know, what's interesting, I get that this is a generalization and that's sometimes true, but it's basically one partner feels connected through sex and one needs to connect first before they want sex. So I see that same dynamic in same sex relationships. It's not as much about gender as as we might believe. Okay, that's fair enough. Because it's can be very, very difficult to talk about sexuality. Now, we've had Julia Lolly on the podcast a couple of times, and we talked about, you know, the power of pleasure, and we talked about using the jade egg and, you know, <laughs> increasing, the, increasing the pelvic floor muscles and things like that. But when it comes to the psychological component of sex, which is probably 90% of it, how do you approach that? And how does somebody, like, remove the stigma that comes with it? Because, I mean, especially in American, man, we're prudish. We don't want to talk about sex. <laughs> 
there's a bunch of different things going on. We're prudish. Nobody knows how to talk about this. It has been taboo. So that's part of it. But also we think we're not supposed to struggle with sex. We think it's something that's just supposed to happen naturally. We're supposed to just feel this desire that it shouldn't be a problem. If it's not really working, something must be really wrong, you know, with us or with our partner or with the relationship. Like what is, you know, does this mean I picked the wrong person or are we doomed? And all that negative feeling, all those negative thoughts compound and make this, first of all, people tend to feel broken or mm-hmm. inadequate or really afraid, which makes it really hard to address because they also don't realize there's something they can do about this. So why, why talk about it if it's sort of a losing battle? Like, you know, we're just broken. There's nothing to change. So why, why have a discussion, right? It can yeah. become so emotionally loaded for people. And then that creates avoidance, not just of sex itself, but also of talking about it. Yeah. So, so an emotionally loaded topic that can end up in a lot of misery, actually. You know, oh, yeah. Tons. Start, tons. Start to talk about it because of the, the gap in between partners and what they perceive as need. And you're right. Let's go into this a little bit about, you said, you know, we have a lot of beliefs around sex that it should just come naturally. Yes. So how do do we address those beliefs to, you know, change our perception? I mean, because of course, you know, animals, right, have sex naturally, but they don't have sex for pleasure and as a general rule. And that's that's, I think, the big difference between humans and other animals. Other animals have sex instinctually to propagate the species, and we have sex for pleasure. And, I mean, one of the things I do teach is that, you know, once we are no longer fertile, I mean, we have a big sex drive when we're fertile, and we're supposed to, right? We're supposed to have a sex drive when we're fertile. While sex is a big part of, of many relationships, at the same time, it's not unnatural to lose your sex drive if you're not going to be able to procreate from it. This is why it's all part of the first pillar of my method too, right? This whole mindset thing, understanding, you know, to really discovering how sex works because you're right. Procreation comes naturally at certain points when we're fertile, right? But Mm -hmm. intimacy doesn't, you know, sex for pleasure and connection doesn't. It's like, you know, eating comes naturally, but a gourmet meal takes some skills, right? Like you gotta, you gotta invest and prepare and how do we change this? I mean, I just keep talking about it everywhere I go about it doesn't just come naturally. It's normal to struggle. Couples that are together for a long time inevitably will have trouble in the bedroom. There are just too many things that complicate sex and sexual desire to think it's just going to run along easily all the time. So nothing is broken. Nothing is broken. That's my message. Nothing is broken. So there are ways to address this, including what feels like lack of libido. It's just for most people, it's just a shift in how libido is working. They don't feel it spontaneously, but they can evoke it. They have what I call reactive sex drive, which is, oh, what if we get going, things are good. If I get the touch I need and the time I need, maybe my body starts to respond. Now I'd like sex. When I describe that, they say, well, oh yeah, that happens sometimes, but they don't recognize that's one way of having sex drive and it's perfectly valid. How do you deal with people who, yeah, I mean, you think about life and living, right? And it's a series of traumas. <laughs> Why are you a pessimist? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not really a pessimist. But, but I mean, if you think about growing up, we'll start with that, right? In our childhood. And we have to separate from our mother. We have to separate right. from, from our parents. Right. And, and through that, you know, it's a series of traumas and, and then discovering ourselves. And in any relationship, there's bound to be 
hurt. One of the things I teach is that forgiveness is really key, especially in a long-term relationship, in order to continue to have intimacy. And so how do you address that side of things? I think of it a little bit differently. I think we go through cycles. We have what are sort of comfort cycles where things are sort of clicking along and working and we can kind of coast and eventually we hit, you know, some walls or some trauma or some events or some changes that require us to go into a growth cycle where we have to take some stuff on and we have to, you know, move to the next level. There's work Mm -hmm. there. It's not comfortable, but, you know, then we move ourselves into yet another comfort cycle. It keeps moving like that. So I think, I think forgiveness is important, but I also think we have to make some changes. We have to demonstrate some change over time. It's not just about, I forgive you. Let's just move on. Like that never happened or whatever, you know, we actually have to learn some new skills. We have to wrestle with some things. We have to take more individually accountability. We have to show up differently and then we can move forward. And it's natural to have to hit those times in our life and in our relationship individually and as a couple where we have to do that work. That's really good. I like to think about growth as a you know sense of being inside of a box and the growth that happens outside the box and then the box expands. Right. That's perfect. Yes. That's exactly yeah. how I think about it. And so mm-hmm. we keep growing and we keep expanding and then our worldview shifts. And so what do you do for those people who just come to you with a really, really fixed mindset and just say it has to be this way or that way? And how do you help to shift them? Well, for the most part, I mean, people come to me because they are suffering, right? And for the most part, they really can see the connection between this mindset, between the way they have, you know, they're so solidly thinking. It relates to why they're suffering. It really does. So I can make those connections. And so even though they may be resistant (laughs) to expanding that mindset or accepting that maybe sex doesn't mean penis in vagina to orgasm or whatever, you know, they've been very attached to something. I do paint this picture of the freedom and relief they could have if they loosen that up, you know, and so I'm describing this vision I've got for how it really works and how I think they're going to feel the most ease, which they're longing for, right? They're really suffering. So I think mostly that motivates people to get more flexible. You know, it's pretty rare where somebody just, no, it's got to be this way. And then I guess I'm sort of talking to the partner because it's not working that way. So what are they going to do? Does it come down to like, you know, sometimes commitment about the relationship and whether they really want to stay in it? Well, sure. Right. Because you can't take sex out of the context of the rest of the relationship. They're intertwined. So if relationship issues are big enough, if they're really wondering if they're happy together if this is what they want to do, well, sex may not even be the thing to talk about because, <laughs> because yes, they have, there has to be a certain amount of commitment or goodwill or investment in this to really take this on together. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So what would you say is the most common issue that you come up against that, that you just see over and over and over again in your practice with middle-aged women, women in menopause? Well, I mean, it's the same issue I see everywhere, no matter what age people are. And it's what we call desire discrepancy. Uh One person wants more sex than the other. And the reason I see that all the time is because that's actually universal. (laughs) You know, in every relationship, one person wants more sex than the other, at least over time. So that's not a problem. But people struggle with that in really specific ways that create suffering. So that's present all the time. And then we add on things like sexual dysfunction that might be showing up. So pain with that, you know, if we're talking about menopause, the hormonal changes, Mm -hmm. the lower libido, maybe more trouble becoming aroused or reaching orgasm, maybe some sexual pain, those things can be added on to it. For a woman who's having a lot of pain, 
you know, due to vaginal dryness or maybe some vaginal atrophy, what, what do you recommend? Well, first thing I recommend is that you actually see a physician, right? Okay. Like let's examine what are the treatment options for that that would be appropriate for them that they want to entertain. And then just in general, there is moisturizing regularly. There is stretching, which is really important, whether that's fingers, penis, toy, whatever, keep the vaginal tissue supple and moving. And then lubrication. Lubrication. Yeah. Lubrication. <laughs> Our ability to lubricate. Yeah, it does change with loss of estrogen, particularly. Right. I mean, there are some things you can get from your doctor, you know, like a estrogen ring and, and things like that that'll help. There's estrogen lube. What do you find is the, you just tend to recommend over and over and over for lubrication? Yeah, I mean, it's not like I specifically recommend it very often, but I guess the one I've got on my bedside table is called Silk, which I really Silk. like. For the woman who's really struggling with arousal, what do you recommend there? So their body's not responding the way it used to. Well, one thing that we have to understand is that we need a certain amount of stimulation to get aroused, and we need a certain amount of stimulation to hit an orgasm. That stimulation is mental and physical. But here's the other thing, the amount we need to get aroused, the bar goes up as we get older. We actually need more than we used to. Okay. So for somebody struggling to get aroused, I'd basically be trying to explore what's the physical stimulation they've been getting and what might they need. And what's the mental stimulation they've been getting and how could they add to that? But we're also talking any sort of negative self-talk or relationship stuff, that's going to be negative mental stimulation. So we have to maybe address those kinds of obstacles or issues that are getting in their way as well. And that, you know, it's possible that they're on some sort of medication that's affecting their ability to arouse that we may or not want to change that, but that could be a factor too. Yeah. I mean, one thing that we do talk about a lot is the fact that, you know, any serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor is going to really affect your ability to reach climax. I mean, that's right. That's it just can. one of the side it effects. Really can. Yeah. And, and, but people's mental health is important, right? So we can't just, no, I don't disagree with that. Or, yeah, right. But also remember that SSRIs are also prescribed for hot flashes and other symptoms of menopause that may not have anything to do with depression. But we also know that you can't abruptly stop in an SSRI because if you do that, there's a higher risk of adverse reactions right. to suicide. We're not advocating that. We're just talking about what can happen. Not Yeah, it's worth talking to your prescriber if you're having sexual side effects about what are the other options around meds or what's going on or how can we manage this? You know, I, I had a conversation with a gynecologist a few about a year and a half ago, all about sexual health and women's health. And it's funny because it's all the same stuff. It's like, okay, use more lube. And I just think that in America, we we tend to not want to talk about sexual dysfunction at all. I can't even tell you how many, I mean, I don't know what the stats are, but most doctors are not comfortable talking about sex. They don't actually know much about sex, even gynecologists and urologists, right? They're yeah. working with parts, but that is that is not their training. And yeah. so often, you know, what I hear people say, well, have a glass of wine or just relax or go see a therapist is, you know, they're not taking these complaints seriously, even sexual pain. They just think it's in the woman's head. Or something. Just remember that in the Western world, we, we teach doctors to treat the sick And so doctors, they have this belief that not only is menopause a medical condition, which it isn't, but they have this belief that that everything can be treated with some sort of pharmacology. And that belief may be starting to shift a little bit. And so we're starting to see more referrals to things like acupuncture or mindfulness training and that sort of thing. But even so, you know, there are still so many people who do not even know how their body works. Do you do education there? Like discover your body? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What is your anatomy? 
Yeah. I mean, I've got books with pictures or recommend books or, you know, we talk about it. Sometimes I get, I certainly get people in my practice, not usually menopause, who've never consummated the relationship and really have had no sex education at all. But for most people, they have a basic understanding of anatomy and how it works, but they may not have really explored what's pleasurable to them. I mean, maybe ever, like never known what really works for them or their body has changed and what used to work doesn't work now and they haven't explored, okay, what's going to work now? So that self-exploration, that that permission to like, let's find what's really pleasing to you, right? Yeah. No judgment. That's really important. One of my friends who's since passed away, so I feel like I can talk about this, but her first marriage, they never consummated their relationship because it was too painful for her. Oh, wow. They ended up getting divorced after about seven years or something. You know, they were just never able to consummate. Normally, what's going on there, when people have pain, it's just so, so important to be persistent. The stats are something like people go through six or seven doctors before they get an accurate diagnosis of what's happening. So there's something causing the pain. And then you add on top of that, what's probably developed into what we call vaginismus, which is the involuntary clenching of the vagina out of anticipation of pain, you know, right. which can make penetration just impossible and more painful. So there could be some other condition going on. And then you add that. And the sad thing is it's really treatable generally. How do you find that to be treatable? If there's an underlying pain condition, that's work you would do with a physician. And again, you may have to be persistent to get answers As far as the vaginismus, what's really crucial is working with a pelvic floor specialized physical therapist. Okay. And they just do amazing work in helping people learn their bodies, how to actually relax. And there's a whole system to gradually accept penetration. You know, it can take some time, but it's really treatable. Yeah. Takes time, I think, any of this. So we've got that. What about those women who, and they're you know, is it like one in four, one in three now who have had some sort of sexual trauma in their life? How do you manage that? Well, that that's actually not work I do directly, like work with people with their trauma, but I absolutely recommend seeing a therapist who's got trauma okay. training and work through that. I work with plenty of people who've had trauma in their past because of course it is so common. Yeah. Um, and right. And then I'm working with a couple about how is that showing up now? What is triggering? Can they settle that down? Can they Can they be in control of their encounters enough that they can gradually learn to relax? Can we focus on what's actually pleasing? But if they haven't really done the trauma work where they're still highly activated or really traumatized, that's where I Mm -hmm. think they need probably individual therapy to, to work through that. Yeah, sure. So you mentioned triggers. How do you help people to recognize their own triggers, to, to be that aware, that self-aware to recognize their own triggers when it comes to sex? In general, I'm trying to get people to slow down anyway, (laughs) right? So I use part of the method, the whole practice part of this is, you know, we can talk about all about these ideas and how things work, but you ultimately have to have experiences to change these things. So it's really, really crucial. And I'm trying to have people have sort of structured practice that slows it down, that puts one person, actually the receiver in charge of what's happening to them. So nothing, they don't have to be guarded that something's going to happen they don't expect, We're gradually exploring pleasure. And by slowing it down, first of all, I think a lot of people actually know what triggers them. But if they don't, they'll find out because they're slowing down what's happening in the moment. Let's pay attention to that. Stop. You know, because it's not sex. It's about these experiences where you're, you're breaking down those kinds of barriers or understanding what those obstacles are and then gradually building up pleasure and communication. I can see that. So what's your take on like orgasmic meditation? 
I actually don't know that much about it. I haven't studied it or done any sort of training in it or anything like that. So my understanding of what it is, is that the partner is getting very slow, gentle stimulation of the clitoris, right? And paying attention, being mindful with all that. And But it's very one-directed touch, right? Towards the the person who's receiving that touch. Yeah, I mean, I, one of my friends was was telling me about it and I said, that's just weird. And I, I have no desire to even... <laughs> Well, I guess it's, a, it's because I don't have more of an understanding. Like if you're doing this in a room with a group, I could imagine that would be a barrier for a lot of people. But the idea of just receiving touch that's one way, that's not pressured, that nothing's supposed to happen, that you're just being mindful to that, that could seem really useful to me. But I would also add in some communication because in my mind, we're each responsible for our own pleasure. And we enlist yeah. our partner. We have to equip them with the information they need to be pleasing to us. So in my program, there's a lot of emphasis on communicating and directing and be, you know, really taking ownership of your experience. And, and your partner is, is a willing participant, but isn't responsible to know what to do or to figure it out or to perform or any of that stuff that burdens people. So if you if you're taking ownership for your own experience, so that means that rather than try to send the you know by ESP like what you right, want right right <laughs> exactly so like like just move a quarter of an inch over <laughs> yeah absolutely part of this exercise I use in the practice part is you know directing the receivers in charge and they have to be directing it takes some real practice to get good at that but if you have any thought in your mind about what would feel better you should share that. Your partner can't read your mind. They don't know. They're not the one in your body. This is not a recipe we can hand them that it works the same way every day. Tuesday is different than Wednesday, right? So we're the (laughs) only one in our body knowing how it feels and how we want it to feel. And so we need to share that information with our partner. I love that. Yeah. And what's your take on like sex toys? Love them. The way I think of them is I just actually, I mean, I sometimes call them sex toys, but they're basically aids to sexual pleasure. Okay. Yahoo, use them. There's nothing wrong with that. Fine, you know, experiment. Whatever is pleasing to people, I think is great. And so there's no shame in needing a toy, nothing else. No body part moves at 3000 RPM or whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, those are aids to pleasure. And why not? All right. And then in terms of like some behaviors that many people would think are aberrant, you know, like BDSM or things like that. How do you, how do you handle that in your practice? How do I handle that? For most people that are coming into therapy, that's not the problem, even if they are kinky, BDSM, whatever, right? Open relationships, poly, whatever it is, that's that's often not the source of their concerns. It's not really the subject of therapy very often, unless I'm dealing with two people who sort of are an erotic, you know, they're wondering if they're an erotic mismatch. One person is really kinky and the other isn't, or one's interested in something and the other isn't. And then it's trying to build understanding and empathy for each other and seeing where there's some sort of overlap or, or is this a deal breaker? I mean, it, it could be, I tend to think people don't actually get together unless there's some overlap in what they find erotic, but you know, occasionally it's a big conversation, but yeah, but most people it's, it's just not part of what the issues are. Okay. And then in terms of sexual mismatch in, let's say, an arranged marriage, have you ever had to come up with that? Yeah, but I don't know that their issues are actually any different in an arranged marriage. Sometimes the cultures that have arranged marriages also have had no sex education. And sometimes these are the same couples that have not yet consummated their marriage. Mm -hmm. And it's not really out of trauma. It's out of fear and lack of education. That's a little bit more common in arranged marriages, in my experience. 
than maybe the general public. But we're still dealing with, they've got to navigate desire discrepancy. They've got to, you know, figure out how desire works, what's pleasing to each other. Like most of the issues are the same. How does somebody like, you know, when they're starting to recognize, you know, like maybe they've gone a couple months, you know, they're, they've been married for a while, they've gone a couple months without sex, they're having difficulty talking about it. How does somebody get help? I mean, how do you even broach that as a, as a problem? I mean, it, you know. If you want, I can share the link. I developed a whole guide about how do you talk to your partner about this stuff? <laughs> because sure, yeah. it, and it's like eight or 10 pages. There's a lot in there. So if you go to intimacywithease.com slash guide, Anybody can download that for free. It's a lot about preparing for that conversation and thinking ahead to what's really going on. How are you contributing to it? And how might your partner be feeling? You know, what might they be afraid of? The bottom line is you need to approach this as a team and as an ally, not as an adversary, not accusatory, not out of desperation, right? It's got to be not that you're the problem, but we have a problem out here. And how are we going to work together? Something else that works. Yeah, outside the box. And as a real win-win, most people that are struggling with sex, it starts to feel a little bit like competing needs. I want more sex, you want less. You know, if I get what you want, you don't get what you want. And we've got to reframe this. We're looking for, I mean, what you know, my goal is to help couples create a sex life that's easy and fun for both of them. It's engaging for both. It is a win-win. That's not the framework most people find naturally. I mean, some right. but yeah. It's interesting because sexuality is so, so, so personal. And, you know, a lot of people really have a hard time talking about it or even yeah. thinking about it. And and at the same time, you know, what's the number one site on the internet? It's probably YouPorn or, or Pornhub. <laughs> and so we have this education that is not really education. It's just Hollywood or sexywood. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> You know, right, right. And porn is not really intimacy. I mean, every once in a while, there's there may be some sort of a porn within it with it with real intimacy, but for the most part, there's well, nothing there's nothing intimate about porn. Well, that's true, but it's also it's also just it's fantasy. It's not real. There's right. camera angles. There's setup. There's effects. There's you know, I mean, I guess suppose there's some amateur stuff up there that might be kind of real, but it's not sex. It's fantasy. So you got to really understand that porn is not a place to learn about how it really works. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people know that even, you know, mature people, the women who, who are, you know, a part of this podcast probably have had children or, you know, you know, definitely by this time, hopefully sexually active, you know, to think about porn as the, as the litmus test for what, you know, how things are supposed to be. Well, part Um, of what sets off this whole avoidance cycle I was talking about earlier is, you know, sex doesn't live up to our expectations, whatever those are. And if you're getting your expectations from porn, or if that's part of it, about how this is, what you're supposed to want, how you're supposed to look, what you're supposed to do, how long you're supposed to last, any of it, those are unrealistic. And you're setting yourself up to feel like a failure, which is then going to drive this negativity that drives avoidance, that drives this whole burden of feeling like something's wrong. Right. Is it possible to actually detach from any sort of outcome when it comes to intimacy with Eve. That's my, that's my entire goal is to get away from any particular part of this whole mindset is to realize that it's all sex. It does not need to be any particular body parts doing any particular thing with any particular outcome. And if you can get, you know, what I talk about is sex is like going to the playground. It's the outing that counts. It doesn't matter what you do when you get there. You do what you feel like doing as long as you feel like doing it. It's all a win. Nothing says you got to go down the slide. You just are playing and you go home and you're done and the whole thing's a win. You literally cannot fail at sex. And so this is what I'm 
constantly preaching <laughs> is those goals and outcomes are are such a burden and causing people to feel like they're failing and driving all this negativity and division and disconnection when it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. So if there's no goal other than to pleasure and connection, pleasure and connection is about pleasure and connection in any sort of variety. I love that. So here's the actual goals, the actual goals of sex. And, you know, it's so funny because one of my mentors likes to say that expectation is the killer of all joy. Right. And, you know, when you go into it, I mean, the other thing that I think happens when you've been in a relationship with someone for a long time, you just kind of get into a rut and it can become kind of boring. And Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's like we're used to going to the playground. We climb the stairs. We go down the slide. We're done. You know, yeah, so yeah. The same thing every time. We just, you know, when people, everybody falls into this rut because it's been efficient. It's the quickest way to get where we think we're going or whatever, get it over with, depending on your, your mindset. And um, yeah, it's nice to sort of reimagine what's possible and so ha- really focusing on pleasure and what you actually want in the moment, which again is built into this whole practice thing. How do you tune in to what you actually want? You mm. Give yourself permission for that and ask for that and, and let go of it. We're supposed to be aiming over here. We can just We can just explore what we want right now. So if you enter into a sexual encounter with no expectation and you are able to actually direct your partner and you just, you just go into it and say, you know, I'm going to try to have fun here. How do you redirect it if you're in the middle of it and things just start to feel too familiar or it starts to kind of go? I think that a lot of people get into ruts, right? Right. What is the number one tool that you can give a couple who's kind of, you know, trying to get going on this. I mean, how, how do you stay mindful? How do you, how do you? Well, I mean, the tool I use is to just change the format. So it's not sex here. We're actually doing an exercise. We're going to take turns asking for exactly what would feel best to us in each moment for like 10 minutes. It might take some practice letting go of having a goal or an agenda. It's supposed to go a certain way, but to help them each practice, what do I actually want right now? And how do I ask for that? And that's often enough to get them out of a rut. Okay. So what if 10 minutes is too long? I mean, <laughs> well, the 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be sexual. I mean, one thing I'm talking to people about, especially, you know, and this is maybe really appropriate to women in menopause, if they're not feeling aroused or it's hard to get aroused or that's just not where it's going, that's okay. Did they want their hair brushed, a foot rub, a back scratch, hell? There's no value judgment. Each person gets to actually seek pleasure in whatever way is the most meaningful and pleasing to them in the moment. So if one person wants their hair brushed and they're just totally into this and the other person is asking for their partner's mouth on their genitals and that's amazing, isn't that lovely? They're both getting the best pleasure in the moment. There's no, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. So how can people go deeper with you? I have a webinar that's available all the time for free at intimacywithease.com slash training. And it really, it's talking about how to make sex easy in your relationship. So we're going to talk about the three biggest mistakes that almost everybody's making (laughs) and then really give you an overview of these four pillars that you really need to do to achieve this. I have a podcast called Better Sex that people might want to listen to. I've got all kinds of topics on there (laughs) at this point. And then they certainly could join my online program if they want to think that's a fit. 
Sure. Well, I think I think that this has been really great. And, you know, it's it's just so funny because, you know, again, like I said, it, it it's just a topic that we never really want to talk about. So was there something, anything else that you were hoping to share with the audience that we didn't get to? Mostly what I want people to take away is that they are not broken. And there uh-huh. is a way to share pleasure and connection with your partner. There really, really is. It does not need to be stressful. Yeah, I like that. It, it doesn't have to be stressful. I think that expectation, not only being the killer of all joy, but expectation is, you know, what breaks down relationships. And it really is the the crux. Well, Jess, I want to thank you for coming onto our podcast today. It's been really great talking to you about this subject that is kind of hard to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that menopause is not a medical condition? Most doctors don't know this either. I like to say that menopause is the privilege of a long life. And to really take hold of our lives in menopause, we have to unlearn what society and the medical establishment has told us about menopause. Thanks so much for being a part of the menopause movement. 